0: Welcome to the weekly ACG New York podcast. I'm Vikash Magdani, Executive Director of ACG New York. ACG, of course, is the largest and most influential committee-steered, member-based network for the global middle-market private capital community. The network focuses on promoting best practice, knowledge, and intelligence for capital providers, industry executives, and those that service them, whilst providing a platform for concierge networking, deal-making, and fundraising. Now, the ACG New York Weekly Podcast invites members, partners, and special guests to discuss key themes and topics poignant in the world of global middle market private equity. And today, I'm very pleased to have with us Mark Chandler, Managing Director of Bannockburn Forex, Global Forex. And, um, and Mark, you know, you're know you someone that I know of because I receive your uh, morning mailers where you're with with your omniscient omnipotent and omnipresent hats on you're uh, you're looking into to the world and and what's going on in the wider economy so first of all, lovely to have you with us today mark
1: how are you today good thank you it's 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 a pleasure to be with you kind of interesting having these uh uh chats over this electronic medium. It seems less personal, but yet we're all getting used to it, huh? I know. It's a it's a new paradigm and that's certainly what we're gonna talk about
0: today. But let me ask you about that actually. Were you um sort of used to doing these beforehand, sort of going onto these rich media platforms and, and conveying your intelligence and prowess? Or is this is this a, a new new one for you as well?
1: Well it's you know it's funny you say that because in the uh are always I've worked with people who are a lot smarter than me, faster than me, more knowledgeable than me. And yet uh, a key ingredient of success, I think uh, in the last twenty years is really not just if you're smart but and and thoughtful, but mm. can you articulate your views? Can you make them accessible to a wide group of people? And i've I've been uh, spending most of my career trying to do that. in some ways, democratize information. Mm. Bring that information we have at institutional level, and bring it down to uh, mom and dad, uh, small businesses, medium-sized businesses. It's not just a, uh, like a special place, uh, the capital markets. That is not just a special place for the very wealthy or for the large asset managers and the large companies. But this is something that affects all of our lives. So for me, it's part of being a good analyst and economist is being able to explain one's views in plain English. Well, you certainly well, sure. do it very, very well, I must say. You're you're being very humble there. I,
0: I read your your morning mailers with um, with glee, I should say, when I receive them. There's so much insight in there. Perhaps Mark, um I know you gave us a snippet there of of yourself, but perhaps tell the tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your journey into the now and what um Bannockburn Global Forex is, please.
1: Yeah, sure. So I, I've spent, uh, I began out of grad school. I have a master's degree in American history and a master's in international political economy. And when I got involved in the markets, this is during the early days of uh, as the Reagan-Thatcher revolution was was like <laughs> spreading around the world. And, and what happened is that the capital markets, people needed People like myself, people who could think, people who could write, and what happens, I think, is that the, at the time, because it was an expanding industry, uh, people like myself with liberal arts degrees, liberal arts backgrounds, could really make a contribution t- to the uh, to the analysis, study, the trading of the uh, of the capital markets. These days, of course, it's quite different. And I'm not sure that someone with my background uh, would necessarily get it easy, find it easy to get a job on Wall Street, or in London. Uh, Banks seem to require MBAs, uh, more quant knowledge. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think I was fortunate that uh, I get involved in the capital markets, first as a reporter on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, where I would spend my days really uh, watching the market and talking to what we call locals. Not the big banks or the firms who are trading, but really the the small person who is basically speculating with their own capital. It might Mm -hmm. be like a one person, two people, like a little shop. And they're trying to like battle wits with the hedge funds, with the George Soroses of the world, with the central banks. And so I naturally, uh, it's a great David versus Goliath story, these small locals taking, taking on risk that the large players didn't want. And from there, I basically, I became, I, I began off as a journalist on the floor. And then I uh, found my way as an analyst. I found that the markets reward people to have an opinion. Mm-hmm. If someone could be wrong all the time, that's just as good as someone could be right all the time. Consistency is important here, but I think the markets are very forgiving, that you make your best effort to understand what's going to happen. And uh, we're, wrong. we're wrong a lot of times. I think uh, that I could be wrong half the time uh, in a day and still have a good day. And so it's really about, when I was younger, I think it was about like, trying to be right. And I think that as I got older, I found that it's really about, not so much about being right, as far as it's really more about minimizing your losses, minimizing the cost of being wrong. Uh, it's, that's really where the challenge is, the risk management, rather than like being right, per se.
0: Yeah.
1: And what about uh, Bannockburn and,
0: and you, the firm and how long have you been at the helm there?
1: Yeah, so I was uh, I've spent most of my career that after being a reporter uh, working for banks, hedge funds, mm. uh, uh, trying to help the largest like S&P 500 and the largest asset managers in the world. And I'll give you an example of what happens. These large asset managers, or large corporations, when they try to buy the euro, they're not buying the spread between the bid and the offer is really where the price is, like a house. Mm-hmm. and the and the, the, these large these large pools of capital corporations or asset managers, they could be paying a thousandth of a penny spread between the bid and the offer and the euro. A lot of small and medium-sized businesses are going to pay three to four percent. Mm-hmm. And I, as I was, as this was becoming clearer to me, it was also at a point in my life where, where these things became more important to me. I think about, like, why why did Americans pay so much for healthcare, care or something simple like the Internet? And the more I read, the more it dawned on me that it was because of these monopolies or oligopolies. And at the same time that I was at Brown Brothers Harriman for about 14 years, helping the largest asset managers navigate the foreign exchange market, I was also teaching at NYU, mm-hmm. uh, they've got a school, a center for continuing uh, education, for a for global, uh, a center for global uh, affairs, and I, I began thinking that I was became more of a part of the problem. The large asset managers, the money that they were taking in was mostly passive investment. They didn't really care about the macro view. I, that is to say, I was able to add value less and less to them. With passive investing, artificial intelligence, these large asset managers didn't really—I didn't—wasn't adding value. At the same time, I was—I was looking at teaching still. I still wanted to teach, but I thought NYU. I thought, is there another way I could uh, contribute? And I began teaching a class at the local community college, and I joined Bannockburn right around the same time. And Bannockburn, uh, like I say, it, it really focuses on small, medium-sized businesses, helping them sort of bring to them those institutional capabilities and tools. And uh, so joining Bannockburn let me add value, helping these businesses that otherwise get treated like tourists in the foreign exchange market or like retail investors from the banks. And so I, I'm finding that uh, what do we wanna do as individuals in our careers? You know, After we have food on our, on our, on our, in our refrigerator, our family's taken care of, what do we want? And I think what we want, I think people like myself is to add value. And small and medium-sized businesses, I think, is a very rich place to bring this institutional experience and knowledge.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, Um, especially where it pertains to SMEs, lower middle market, the middle market, of course. Um, Ever since this this COVID-19, I'm calling it a crisis, as our others began, we at ACG have been homing in on uh, a veritable feast of topics that will help private equity players and their portfolio companies speak to human capital management, liquidity and credit management, uh, information sharing, data management, cybersecurity, technology management, uh, business continuity plans, insurance, regulatory management. And I thought today we could we could home in on um, foreign exchange. But before we do that, sir, um, take us back. I mean... 90 days ago the world was somewhat different it's the last day of of march the fi- the first quarter so much has gone on but let's go back to to 2008 and that crisis then because i want to i want to touch on the difference then and now and, and and the vagaries between both but talk us through last the the crisis the financial credit crunch of of the last time round and how we bounced back and the crescendo that was, you know, the end of last year when certainly private equity as a class had performed very very well, and then we can touch on 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 this on this this fall now whether it's a V or a or a deep U shaped parabola I don't know. But talk us through the last decade if you would, Mark, and give put it put, put us put us all into context, please.
1: Sure. So I sort of think about this as like a, a pattern. Mm. And what's happened is. Uh, since the late 70s, the kind, of, the kind of crisis we've had in the U.S., we've had the uh, savings and loan crisis, mm-hmm. we've had the, uh, the te- tech bubble uh, of the, uh, of the, of the uh, late 90s, we had a great financial crisis. And what all three of these have in common is they were essentially financial crises that spilled over and hit the real economy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and this crisis is a bit different because it began off it's fundamentally an economic crisis that's hitting the financial sector but when we had this financial crisis the great financial crisis uh, what what happened i mean we've seen a lot you've probably seen a lot of the the uh, the, the movies the shows the uh, the debates about the uh, uh, ultimately what happens i think and this is from this economist hyman minsky
0: mm-hmm.
1: who basically says if you have a market a steadily rising market. After all, isn't that what we all want? A steadily rising market. He says that stability leads to instability. And how it transforms is because of this word that really is the cost of everything, and that's leverage.
0: Mm.
1: So imagine when we buy a house, Say they, they, they ask us to, say, put 20% down. In effect, you're borrowing 80%. Mm. What happens in the financial markets is you can get much more leverage than that. You put 20% down, you borrow 80, right? So imagine that's a four-to-one leverage. But imagine some of the largest hedge funds, some of the largest financial products have leverage much greater than that. I'll give you an example. Yeah. If you want to have, there's a futures contract that mm-hmm. settles at where the Fed funds target rate is. Excuse me, where the Fed funds effective rate is at the end of the month. That is the largest futures contract in the world. It's five million dollar notional value. Mm. You or I could control that for a couple thousand dollars. Why? Well, partly when we buy a house or we buy an equity, like a stock, we are we are putting a down payment towards a future purchase. Mm. So the amount of money you have to put down is something related to the amount of thing that you're trying to buy. Yes. In the financial markets, it's completely different. What happens is you, as your, as your broker or your dealer or your bank, I'm asking you to put up enough money only to cover how much money you're likely to lose in a day or two before I can liquidate your asset. Mm-hmm. That margin money, in effect, in the capital markets, which is why you can get so much leverage, is not about how much you're buying, what that notional value is, but how much money you could lose. It's not a down payment towards your purchase. It's a down payment towards your future loss. And the more volatile a product is, the more you could lose in a day. So the higher the margin is and so what happens is that uh, you build up that leverage, you keep buying assets because they move in your favor, it ties up a little bit of capital. But then, when the situation reverses it's 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 horrible mm. that is your loss is really on your whole amount, not about, not based on the margin money you put up. So in the stock market, you can't lose any more money than you put up. You invest something for a thousand dollars, you can lose all that, but no more. In the in the capital markets, you can lose a lot more than your margin money. And so these financial crises happen: a combination of risk taking, a combination of government uh, incentives, for example, about selling homes to people who might not be able to afford them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think that there's, you know, it's funny in the, in the markets. I see two big emotions. At the pendulum that swings in between them. On one hand is fear of losing what you have, and then the other hand, the other side of the pendulum is greed. And in these big, in these big speculative bubbles, in these big rallies, that that uh, that pendulum swings towards greed. And people for, people take on greater risk than they appreciate, they leverage the margin, it's not just Uh, You know, we're talking about these huge pools of capital, much more than we're talking about individuals. And what happens to our types of clients, our types of customers, small, medium-sized businesses, they get get squeezed by this, by these huge movements of capital, which uh, raises interest rates, changes currency levels dramatically, makes it harder for small and medium-sized businesses to operate. Not only are they already capital-scared for the most part, there's a short stack at the table, but they they're subject to a lot of these vagaries of the capital markets
0: mm, it's all very interesting yeah. and the permutations and combinations are for forever being calculus, and there's so much coercive and cognitiveness in there um especially when you when you bring in greed um what do you I, I must let me home in on 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 the dollar here for the moment we've seen it rally what what do you make of the dollar strength then at the moment so
1: i had a i think that we can we went off the Woods system in yep. 1971 Yep. and the dollars had and we're in the middle of it really the three big significant dollar rallies since 1971. We had the Reagan dollar rally, which in the uh, first part of the 80s, it actually begins before Reagan's the president. But it really takes off under his presidency, and this was a combination of loose fiscal policy, tax cuts, social spending, defense spending, and a tight Federal Reserve with Paul Volcker at the Federal Reserve raising interest rates to squeeze out that double digit inflation the U.S. had. Policymakers around the world thought the dollar had gone too far. And so they met in <clears throat> excuse me, September of 1985 at the Plaza Hotel in New York, and they agreed to drive the dollar down. Mm. And the dollar went for about a 10-year bear market. And then we had a technology boom, And but the dollar was still falling for a bit of it. And, and uh, by around 1994, 1995, the dollar bottomed, and it's kind of interesting what, how it bottomed. The dollar bottomed when, not just because Bill Clinton and the presidency and, and the tech bubble per se, but we, had, we changed treasury secretaries. Previously, the U.S. used the dollar to try to beat up its rivals, try to get Germany uh, or, or Japan to do something that we wanted them to do about their markets, about stimulating their own economies. And so we would threaten them to let the dollar decline. Lloyd Benson was the Treasury Secretary under, under Clinton, and he threatened the Japanese to let the dollar fall. And uh, the dollar, we had a little dollar crisis then, and then Robert Rubin came to the head of the Treasury Department. And Robert Rubin gave us the mantra that we've used since then, or Treasury Secretaries have used since then, uh, until now at least, saying uh, strong dollars in U.S. interest. And it's kind of like an interesting mantra because even though it'd be repeated, it was also a source of confusion. We had one vice president of the United States that said a strong dollar meant it was difficult to counterfeit. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what I think Robert Rubin meant by the strong dollar. He meant that we were, would not use it as a weapon to try to open up foreign markets or reduce our debt through purposely devaluing it. Yeah. So the dollar the dollar we have this Clinton Rubin dollar rally then, and it goes from uh, the mid-90s to about 2000,